Hi, welcome to the first episode of this podcast, Big Problems, Small Solutions. And this is a podcast that we're running to chat with members of the scientific community about the big problems of the world today and how they're making uh, solutions that cross all scales, but go down to nanometer size. With me is Dr. Sabine Howard. Hi, Scott. Great to be here. Thanks for joining me. Um, so, would you like to introduce yourself and maybe a little bit of the work you do? Sure. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Bristol in the Bristol Robotics Laboratory. I'm also president and co-founder of RoboHub.org, uh, and you might also be interested in another project, AIHub.org. My team broadly engineers swarms across scales, from the nanoscale, so thinking of nanoparticles to treat cancer, all the way to the robot scale, where we might be thinking about how to use tens or hundreds or even thousands of robots for things like environmental monitoring or logistics. Hmm. So when you're talking about those robots, that must be small but large swarms of them? When we're looking at the tiny robots, so things at the nanoscale or the microscale, they inha- inherently work in huge numbers. So if you think of it of a treatment uh, in, the, in the area of nanomedicine, uh, in one injection of these nanoparticles, you'd have 10 to the power 13 particles. So there you're dealing with how should you design those individual particles so that that very large number does what you want them to do in a cancer environment. Mm-hmm. And if you were to go up to larger robots, like things that would be walking around amongst humans, are we still talking trillions? I don't think so. Probably not. No, we're probably looking at smaller numbers, but eight and, and smaller numbers, but individuals that are more capable. Uh, so mm-hmm. in, in some instances, we just have 10, 20 robots, but those robots might have GPUs on board, so far greater computational power. They're better able to sense their environment and they move more precisely. Sure. Uh, we could be thinking of robots you know, at the larger scale that work in the thousands maybe, or even the tens of thousands, Mm-hmm. Uh, doing a lot of random walk and just very simple behaviors. Yeah. Uh, but we're nowhere near uh, the 10 to the power 13 we see at the nanoscale. No. And perhaps it's best we don't go there quite yet. Probably not. No. Yeah, we don't even know how to make that. No. So when we talk about uh, swarm robotics, um, I've heard a couple of lectures from you and your information's out there on TEDx and TED Talks. Um, you talk about trying to do some biomimicry on occasion, like. Uh, bird flocking, uh, fish schooling, and things like that. So is there anything particular that you like about the animal world and how it relates to your robots? So in swarm robotics, uh, really what's interesting in swarms is that they can scale to huge numbers, Mm -hmm. uh, and they're robust, so if individuals fail, the whole swarm doesn't fail. And they have this idea of emergent properties or collective intelligence, which means that they can do more than the sum of their parts. Now, the way these systems emerge is is by every individual in that swarm doing simple local behaviors, uh, just following simple rules, really, uh, and that gives rise to these, these beautiful dances. Now, the challenge as a swarm engineer is very often you know what group behavior you want to engineer, mm-hmm. but you need to discover those rules. <coughs> but you need to discover those rules. And so we use two methods. One is bio-inspiration. You're right. Biologists have studied the flocks and the ants um, or the bees and their ability to make decisions. And we can take inspiration from those rules to engineer solutions in the artificial world. But sometimes we don't have that inspiration. Uh, And in those cases, we actually use machine learning to come up with solutions automatically. Okay. So if you've got a a complex uh, environment that, 
a animal probably wouldn't recognize or you know a, a network that they've never seen before you want to have a machine be able to observe things take in information from its sensors and uh, build a map of where it needs to go and what to do it's even simpler than that it doesn't need to be a, a map mm -hmm. of any sorts but sometimes if there is no bio inspiration uh, what we'll do is we'll simulate uh, lots of random programs or lots of random strategies uh, and then score them depending on how well they did in simulation. And then we'll take those best scoring uh, solutions and we'll basically improve on them. We'll mix them a bit. We'll mutate them a bit. And this is what we call artificial evolution. It's a strategy to automatically discover good behaviors that give rise to desired swarm behaviors. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one way in which we can have swarms figure out on the go uh, how to perform a task. So it's essentially education for robots. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Done in the virtual world often. Yeah. Send them to school and when they come back and make you proud. Mm -hmm. Hopefully. You yeah, buy them a car. yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, a lot of your things in the nanomedicine world, um, they're actually looking into swarms as they pertain to, on the one hand, you've got nanoparticles, which they can interact with each other, but they're limited. And on the other hand, you've got a little bit larger scale with actual uh, motility and mobility. You uh, engineer like a, the, the old adage is uh, the fantastic voyage submarine where you shrink down the little rocket ship and it goes in the human body. Uh, whilst we're not putting the humans in there to pilot the thing, um, what are the options available for you know driving a system around the human body? So with these nanoparticles, you don't have computational power, really. You don't have abilities to sense in the classical robotics uh, sense. Not and until so, we get down to quantum computing. That's right. And so with these nanoparticles, the way you control their swarm behavior or their collective behavior is to figure out how to design the body of those individual particles. So it could be changing the size of those particles, which is going to change how fast they move. It could be changing the material of these particles. Some of them could be energy receptive, mm -hmm. uh, reacting to light or magnetic fields. You could change what you coat these particles in so that they stick uh, yep. to other things in their environment, for example, receptors on cancer cells. Or slip through others that they don't want to stick to. Mm -hmm. Or you could load them with different materials that you can release in a more or less controlled fashion. Yeah. So actually, <clears throat> so actually, there's many knobs that you can turn on the design of these nanoparticles. Uh, and depending on how you turn those knobs, you're going to get completely different collective behaviors. And so for us at the nanoscale, the way we control them is figuring out what the right knobs to turn are. Uh, so we explore a lot of those parameter spaces in simulation. And then ultimately, when we find good strategies, we work with people uh, who can test these in, in microfluidics like you can, uh, or we do them uh, in, in vivo, actually, to understand if these would have a beneficial effect uh, in the context in the context of cancer. Mm -hmm. So the way they move around the body is that they flow through the bloodstream most often, uh, and then we engineer them so that once they escape the bloodstream into the tumor tissue, we, we try to engineer them to move as best as they can in that tumor tissue so that they're being eaten up by all the cancer cells that they need to be treating. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also more creative solutions. Uh, so uh, Simone Schirle, a collaborator from ETH Zurich, uh, who was in Boston before, 
worked on these little artificial ma- bacterial flagellas, the little yep. magnetic mm-hmm. micro robots, little coils, really. And using her device and a device also designed by Brad Nelson, she can uh, remote control them through little vessel-like structures. Sure. And as these micro robots swim, they push things around. And so if these micro robots live in, in a solution of nanoparticles, they're essentially going to be pushing these nanoparticles around, mm-hmm. which could then power these nanoparticles, for example, to go deeper into a tumor tissue. Yeah. So there's also clever solutions where you have controllable robots with mm-hmm. passive particles and yeah. see if you can improve the system as a whole. Yeah, the little corkscrew motion that allows mm-hmm. you to sort of drive a solution one way or the other. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when it comes to uh, swarms for bigger problems like agriculture. I understand you've got a couple of projects on the go that are looking into, you know, how they might walk around a, a well, I won't say sunny, but a, a rainy UK field, uh, looking into uh, either crop health or even planting the crops themselves. So that's early days. Really what we're trying to do is get swarms out of the lab. A lot of the research in swarm robotics has been in the lab. And I feel like we're at a stage where we can finally push this out because we can develop hardware uh, much better than we could before. And we also have a set of algorithms, either bio-inspired or using machine learning that allow us to, to figure, you know, we know how to control these forms. Uh, so the next stage is to get them out into the real world. And we've been doing use case studies to see what people want. So we've done use case studies with firefighters, with people who do bridge inspection, and with people who work in warehouses to understand what their needs are and if they would even be receptive to the idea of a swarm. And it turns out that many of them are, uh, provided we do it right. The right way. The right way. So we're in the, in the early stages of, of trying to do it in the right way and to design robots that can be used in the outside world. Uh, so in, in terms of farming, this was just really a concept, an idea. Um, could little robots be biodegradable seeds that kind of swarm over a field and plant themselves. Mm-hmm. And actually that has a lot of similarities uh, with the way you would think of nano or microsystems that work within huge numbers and are single time use uh, yes. and are disposable within their environment and have a very local effect. So we're kind of taking inspiration from that to see how we would design a stochastic swarm, a swarm that works yeah. mostly through random motion, but still does the job. It just acts as a robotic germination for crops. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned firefighters. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say about that one? So that again, these are early stage explorations. So we've done the use case studies to understand if they think this would be a useful technology. Mm-hmm. And and one thing that was interesting is we had always assumed that our firefighting uh, robots would be sent to extinguish fires uh, because we thought that was really the, the, the... It's not an out of the box idea. No, but we yeah, we, we thought that that would be where they they were needed yes because that's the dangerous bit of the job but it turns out that uh, they feel there's a lot of expertise in how you extinguish a fire and that the robot might not be the best suited to do that instead they thought the robot swarm would be helpful to gather information Mm. so that the humans could then go in and do the decision making so it's always interesting to understand where the need is Mm -hmm. uh, and where the expertise of, of the humans should should be used in the best way and maybe where technology can help because ultimately yeah. that's what they are, they're helpers. Mm-hmm. And eventually you get to the point where you sort of don't want to outclass or, you know, remove the human from the equation because they've been, they've undergone so much training. What you actually want is the technology to assist and benefit rather than replace. That's one of the key findings from these studies, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, you do an awful lot of outreach uh, programs for your laboratories. Um, I understand that we've uh, been seeing you branch out into things like escape rooms. Uh, I don't know if that's your own project or whether you'd like to just say something about that. Yeah, so we, we run two nonprofits. One is robohub.org and the other is aihub.org. And they're uh, dedicated to connecting the robotics and AI communities to the public. .org sounds like a cool <laughs> Maybe we should have called it that way. Yeah. Uh, so what we're trying to do is enable the robotics and AI communities to spread the word about their work and to communicate directly with the public because mm-hmm. they have a lot of stories to tell and they are in the best position to demystify the technology. Yeah, with um, science, a lot of mystery, mysterious uh, elements exist and the more you can sort of take it out to the public and show, no, it's actually useful, helpful, mm-hmm. not scary. Mm-hmm. It's always a good thing. Yeah, then you can have a real meaningful conversation when you when you go out there yeah. and, and say what you're doing directly rather than going through those intermediaries. Uh, so we've been building this up for years, and we're now supported by many of, of the top AI organizations around the world. Uh, but the reason I launched this personally is because I, I do care deeply about science communication, and I think we need to do a better job mm-hmm. um, just explaining what it is we do uh, within the research world, and uh, with the ivory towers in education still. Yeah, and in a lot of these discussions, like the use case studies, actually the most interesting is to understand what people care about because sometimes we're just so removed from the reality of what would be useful in the real world yeah. that the things we're developing are, are are just too far away from reality. So even though we design swarms that sound very ra- wacky. Uh, some of these questions that we're having answered through these use case studies, these are things we could do, they're mm. things we could implement, and I think we need to know that so that we do things well. Uh, the escape room is actually a, a project um, from, from Daniel Carrillo Zapata, who's one of the PhD students in our laboratory, and it's a proper escape room. So you spend 30 minutes to 45 minutes breaking out of swarm escape, uh, which, is, which is a set of puzzles around swarm robotics, and it teaches you about the technology. Now, are the swarms keeping you in there? Or there no. There, well, you need to crack puzzles that have to do with swarming. Okay. Uh, but I won't tell you much more than that. No, um, don't spoil. I won't spoil it for you. Yeah, then you'll be able to break out a little bit too easily. Uh, but the cool thing is then we ask the public what applications they think swarms could do as a result of having learned all of this during the escape room experience. They have loads of ideas. Some of them are, are wacky like massages, but some of them relate to the things we're exploring, like agriculture, like logistics, mm-hmm. uh, like like biomedical areas where we, we use these tiny swarms to treat cancer. Yeah. And one thing I know about science communication is some of the wackiest ideas come from when you go out and chat to kids about it, but also some of the actual better answers of what the next generation is going to need. Um, I believe you've got a couple of people that work in education around that, you know, the school age. There was a, a beautiful project which which we're trying to get off the ground um, with, with Laura Gamel and Chanel Lee that has to do with kids telling us what we should be designing as engineers and scientists. And so the idea would be that the scientist goes to this workshop and says, okay, this is what I'm working on, this is what I know how to do. And the kid then comes and says, why don't you design this? And so comes up with the ideas that could fundamentally change their everyday life, mm-hmm. might be a little wacky, but might also have a real application uh, in terms of saving the world. I think we can think very big when we're a kid. Uh, and so 
the idea would be to get a list of these great projects that the kids have and actually figure out if we can implement some of them so that they can see how powerful they are yes. uh, in the process of, of defining the future. So yes. I would love to get this off the ground. Yeah, a lot of uh, scientists sort of, they find their niche and they look into it and then they keep looking into it and eventually you might get a couple blinkers on either side of what's actually important. Mm-hmm, but true. if there's one group of people that knows what's important in life, it's the people that are actually have their eyes up looking forward mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it's good and to plus get... they'll tell you the truth <laughs> that's true they won't lie just because they think no. it's going to hurt your feelings <laughs> prevent them from getting a grant application mm-hmm. yeah 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 uh, well that's a good couple of uh, minutes we've spent talking but if there's anything else you'd like to chat about before we sign off that'd be up to you no this is great thank you okay well Thank you for being on this, the first episode of Big Problems, Small Solutions. Uh, And I certainly hope to be your host on many more. Goodbye.